Because the first couple of times I'd say anything like that, people were like, okay, check this guy off the list. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> I've just outed you. Yeah. <laughs> You'll never work in this town I'm done. again. I'm done. Yep. <laughs> Crash and burn before my eyes. Jeez. Hey, everybody. How are you doing today? Welcome. This is Keith Billick, and you have chosen to listen to this episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast, which, in case you can't tell, is a podcast only about banjo stuff. So, if you're looking for a podcast about absolutely anything else, you have come to the very wrong place. Uh, When I was first researching names for this podcast, and I came up with Picky Fingers, I would Google it just to see what else is out there. And mostly what else comes up under Picky Fingers has something to do more or less with like kids being picky eaters and they have picky little fingers that they eat their chicken nuggets with or whatever, but this is not that. Here, we eat all of our vegetables and we only talk about banjo stuff. That's what we do. Not only do we talk about banjos, but we talk to banjo players and today you're in for a real treat because the guest for today is Greg Cahill and he's really one of the stalwarts in the banjo and really the larger bluegrass world. And we'll get to his credentials in a little bit. First of all, the, the typical stuff that I that I have to always say at the beginning, if you want to support the podcast, you can do so in a few different ways. You can go to patreon.com slash banjo podcast and donate money to keep the podcast supported that way. Other than that, you can support it just by telling all your friends uh, or at least any of them who um, would be interested in knowing about the podcast. And let's face it, if you have friends who aren't into banjos, they're not really worth your friendship anyway. So you can get rid of them. So you can spread the word about the podcast. You could also subscribe and uh, rate the podcast on iTunes or whatever other platform you're on. And that all helps get the podcast recognized and lets me know that you're enjoying it. And that uh, is pretty meaningful to me. And I enjoy that. Uh, another way to get a hold of me is to just email the show directly, which is pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. And I say it every time, but I enjoy hearing from you. Just recently, I've heard about people who have found banjo teachers because of the podcast. Uh, Davy Jones, who I interviewed in episode number one, uh, there was someone who who tracked him down and is now taking lessons just because of that. There's also people who have heard things that some of the interviewees have said that raises questions in their mind that maybe didn't get covered quite as thoroughly during the interview, and they wanted that to be covered on on future podcasts. And I think that's all great ideas because it's not necessarily things that I would just think about on my own. So I really appreciate you helping me out with that. So once again, that's pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. So today we have a conversation with Greg Cahill. Now, Greg would be a really well-known banjo player, even if all he ever did was play in his band. His band, of course, is Special Consensus. They are a Chicago-based bluegrass band. They've been around since 1975. Greg is an original member of that band. They've come out with about 19 recordings, some of which have won IBMA awards. Uh, I know there's at least one that was nominated for a Grammy Award. So they're just a very established, well-respected bluegrass group, and they've been around for a long time, and they deserve a lot of the respect that they get for that. Greg himself is also single-handedly responsible for a lot more 
or rather he deserves a lot of credit for, for spreading the word about banjos and bluegrass. He served as the IBMA president. That's the international bluegrass music association president for several years. And that organization is its main mission is to spread and maintain bluegrass music. He teaches out of the old town school of folk music in Chicago. He's released a number of instructional DVDs and books He's been involved in getting traditional American music programs started in schools. So it's often these young school kids, their first encounter, seeing fiddlers and banjo players and and mandolins and, and actually getting spoken to about what this music is all about. So he's done a lot for the banjo and for, for bluegrass music. The latest release by Special Consensus, it's, a, it's an album called Rivers and Roads. That was just released this year, 2018, on Compass Records and was produced by yet another great banjoist, um, Allison Brown, who is a, the co-owner of Compass Records. So that's bound to have some great banjo music on it. One other quick thing I want to make sure that I mention, there's a segment of this interview in which Greg starts talking about a specific track that he recorded on one of his solo albums and talks about some mandolin playing that Jethro Burns did. I'm not going to spoil the content of what, of his story with that, but just to clarify, we we're both talking and he can't remember quite what the, the name of that track was. Well, I tracked it down. The track in question is called Sherwood Square, and it's from his solo album called Lone Star. So any of you who would like to track that down after hearing the sound snippet that occurs in the interview and hearing him describe how it was recorded... Uh, feel free to do that. I believe it's only available on LP, though. So you will have to be turntable equipped, or I think you can listen to it on YouTube as well. But that's Sherwood Square is the name of that song. So I believe that's all I have to say for now. I hope you enjoy soaking in all of the banjo wisdom that Greg has to offer. So here we go with the conversation with Greg Cahill. Let's not get the lights uh, too dim in here. <laughs> Save up on some sleep. It's quiet while we can get and comfortable. It. That's right. It is. So, Greg, thanks for joining me, man. Oh, glad to be here. How are you? This will be fun. Everything's good. Cool. Yeah. So this is actually not the, the banjo that I expected you to have. I feel like I've seen some photos of you recently with one of those Czech-made banjos. Do you play one of those? The, well, interestingly the enough, is that the Chopic, yeah. Um, no, but we're friends. Okay. And uh, Ned and I just were over in Prague. I think that's for the, Rasta's what I'm wedding. thinking of. Yeah. Okay. And so uh, there were a couple times that those of us who played other banjos did play his banjo, one of his banjos, you know. We did a concert. Um, it was real, I don't know, should I start babbling about this? Yeah, babble I mean, away. All right, I'll babble. Um Rasta Chopik, yeah, makes really good banjos, and he and his now wife, Eva, uh, have been together for years, but they decided to get married, and they decided uh, they do promote concerts over there in Prague Mm -hmm. at this big theater, and we had played that. I had played that with Special C, and and at the Kaufman camp, actually, um, we played, I think it was Gary Davis and Ned and myself. um, and we, we played the, did a set with just his banjos, you know. Okay. Um, so he, they looked at who was going to be in Europe they, at the time that they were going to get married. And so they pulled together this 
<laughs> it turned out to be a really fun band. It was uh, Peter Rowan and Ned Lubrecki. And that's his wedding band, that, as yeah, it turned out. Yeah, it that's turned really out. Cool. We did a concert the day before, two shows. Very cool. Sierra Hull, Martino Capo. Wow. Um, Rob Ikes, Trey Hensley. Um, so that was just a big coincidence that you were over there yeah, anyway they, they, and right. um, they were just, able to attend. They pulled people from wherever, and I was teaching at the bluegrass camp germany and so i came from there took the bus to prague actually from munich and so uh, that's where you saw me playing that uh, okay at, at the show i played at least a couple tunes on one of his banjos with ned because ned endorses those banjos yeah he has his own yeah, model, he has his model like so, so he he is actually the only guy who actually came over for that show everybody else was already in europe so yeah well that that worked out really nicely yeah it was great more people than you could probably reasonably expect to just end up in the Czech Republic, really? yeah. Offhand, yeah. They had a Czech bass player, and I'm I'm that's, I'm terrible about it because I can't remember his name. But um, they also had a guy named Radim Zenkel, who's a phenomenal mandolin yeah, player. Yeah, familiar with him. He played didgeridoo for one of the songs. Wow, okay. Yeah, <laughs> Angeline the Baker. Didgeridoo. Angeline the Baker on the didgeridoo with uh, Ned on banjo and Martino on man. It was really cool. Yeah, that would be a first. Yeah. So what is this instrument that you have with you? Um, this is one, actually, that I found in a pawn shop about 30 years ago, 25, wow. 30 years ago. It was a tenor banjo. It's a Kelcroydon mm-hmm. made by Gibson at the time for their low, lower level model. And it had the tenor neck. And, and as you can see by some of the wear marks, I'm sure somebody played Dixieland music and sat hunched over like this for a lot of years yeah, because strumming away. it was the fr- fingerboard on the tenor neck is all scooped out behind the frets. I mean, somebody really played it. I love that so, a lot of those old country guitars, you can tell whether they played in E or G yeah, most often yeah. because of where the divots where are. It is. Yeah. So I um, actually it sat down in my, my uh, basement office for seven or eight years because I was agonizing over whether or not I was going to put a tone ring in, you know. Okay. Uh, because you know, you have to cut Smith the rim down. One. Yeah, you do a little bit, and everybody. Yeah. There's some of the ones without the tone rings sounds so good. But then I thought, well, I play so many festivals where sometimes the sound isn't so great, and at least sometimes a tone ring brings out more sound mm-hmm. when you need it. So this now has a Yates tone ring in it, and uh, and a Frank Neat neck. Wonderful. And uh, it's a 1935. And it's been broken once or twice by the airlines, but it still survives, so it's good. But you don't regret having uh, having it customized to what you actually needed to do, I take it? I really don't, you know. I have yeah. an old three that I, I recorded with for a lot of the Special C recordings and uh, actually some of my own things. And um, so we have a new recording out called Rivers and Roads, and it's right. the first one that I use this banjo on. Just the guys in the band love this the sound of this banjo, you know, just the tone and the And everything the else has been your style three up yeah, until that point. Pretty much. Interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, early on, I mean we've got nineteen recordings, so early on I before I had any kind of banjo like that, I had, you know, Gibson copies a lot and a few different models. I played a Pruka from uh, Yeah, speaking of the from the, the Czech, Czech Republic, and I uh, played a Huber, and I still have a Huber and a Pruka, yeah. and they're great banjos, you know. And I had a Stelling, and so so on and so forth. But back to the old Gibson Definitely. here, you know. Yeah, wonderful. How'd you get started with these things? You're, you're a Chicago guy, pretty through and through, right? Yeah, um, yeah, and a lot of people wonder that, but you know, after. Uh, World War II, a lot of the folks from down south moved up to Chicago for jobs, right? Same thing with Detroit. Yeah, yeah, yeah same thing. And uh, they had a, 
a huge uh, theater. George D. Hay came to Chicago and started uh, the WLS Barn Dance, mm-hmm. right? Sponsored by Sears, the world's largest show, store. So, right. um, and it was so popular, people packed it out, stood for blocks, even in the cold weather, to to get in. And that's how Homer and Jethro moved to Chicago okay. to be on the Barn Dance. Um, and Bob Atcher and all sorts of great singers and players. And um, and then he moved to Nashville and started the Grand Ole Opry after that. So there are all these people who love country music. There were great players who lived there. Right. Not necessarily bluegrass, and I wasn't hearing so much bluegrass back then. Um, but uh, I kind of – I played the accordion actually as a kid. <laughs> and, they, you know, that, 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 it's the classic uh, – I fit the joke, you know. I played the accordion and decided to move on to the banjo to make more money or more popularity or whatever you want to call it. But <laughs> Perhaps the funniest thing about that is I was just talking to Alan Mundy, and he played the accordion too, and I actually own an accordion also. <laughs> and I think I said something about all we need now is some bagpipes. Yeah, okay. And um, we'll just be the most hated musicians yeah. of all time. We should ask no, that's that's really funny. Yeah, Alan, Alan and I end up rooming together sometimes when we need to have roommates at some of these camps, and I think we should bring our accordion sometime and just have a little... Do you even know that about each other, that you're fellow accordion players? No. <laughs> no. I mean, going I to didn't. all the accordion camps, that <laughs> no. could really double your yeah. potential jobs. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, my mom was a great kind of honky-tonk style piano player okay you know? and then uh, so our family gatherings always had music everybody around the piano singing and playing and my yeah. sisters played the uh, piano and, and one sister played the accordion but it was uh like my high school graduation uh, um is uh, when pete seeger and especially kingston trio and all them uh that was that era the late Folk 60s yeah. yeah and this guy had a five string and he was just strumming on it i just thought it was so cool and then I really, when I went to college up in Minnesota, got into Pete Seeger, got the 12-string guitar, the 6-string, the long yeah. neck banjo. And then Dave yeah. Gard was my hero, you know, with Kingston, Kingston Trio. Trio. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and then, you know, what, uh, Beverly Hillbillies hit the TV waves, airwaves, and there it was. I was like, oh, my gosh. And uh, so I was in this folk trio with a guy and a girl, and... Um, we'd play like Shakey's Pizza Parlors when we were in college to make spending money. Yeah, and then uh, and then the guy came to my dorm room one day and was like, "Man, you got to hear this!" And it was like, "How many guys are playing that banjo?" It was Earl play? It was the Foggy Mountain Banjo album. You oh, know? and you thought it was? It sounded like <laughs> no ten, way one three guy guys. Could, yeah. yeah. So that pretty much did it. I, I just was eaten up with it. And, and then uh, I got out of school and went into the Army for a couple of years and came back in 1970 and went back to Chicago. And I was married by then and, and had a, a little son and uh, was trying to learn how to play the banjo and started – the University of Chicago Folk Festival would bring in all these great old um, perform Stanley Brothers. They had Flatten Scruggs, who I never saw there. Uh, it was before – I was aware of what was going yeah, on in there. Yeah. But uh, just some great The Pinnacle Mountain Boy, The Pinnacle Boys and Ola, Real, Ola Bell Reed playing you know, her style. And so it was all great. And I met the guys that we formed special consensus with just picking in the hallway at the University of Chicago Folk Festival and was listening to records and trying to slow them down and figure out what That's was how you were on. learning, just by yeah. mm-hmm. listening to as much as yeah. you possibly could. And-, and there was a guy in Chicago named Richard Hood who's living out... Uh, it's, I don't know if it's New York or 
Pennsylvania, somewhere now. But he um, he was a great player, and he played with a band called the Greater Chicago Bluegrass Band. And, okay. and I took a couple lessons from him, and he was advised me on good, you know, recordings to listen to and to buy and to try to play with and and then he uh, i started going to bluegrass festivals with him you know on the weekend and uh, boy when you go to a bluegrass festival especially back then when they were you know most of them happened in the summertime yeah. and you, you there weren't that many and so when you went it was like mind-boggling you know these are my people yeah Good. and uh, became a huge jd crow fan addict and uh was he your main early influence earl obviously you earl, already yeah. said that you loved him but. i loved earl well it was interesting because at that time um yeah earl was the man but crow had the just this distinctive tone and the way he mm-hmm. twisted the licks around and it just wow and at the same time newgrass revival came out and they were killer and i was listening to courtney, with johnson, courtney johnson you know yeah. with all the what they call the chromatic stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, Were you trying to do that too, or did I you was, stick pretty? Okay. I probably did more of that before I really worked on. The, I mean, I was always working on the Scrooge stuff, trying to figure it. But uh, the, see, because I ended up living maybe three or four blocks from Jethro Burns, hmm. and so I would see him at the music store, and then we became friends, and I got to play with him quite a bit. You know, we'd do festivals, and sometimes even travel together, and. Um, or shows we did a couple places we do the same show every year and did several of those in Chicago yeah. with him and so and he was just a great guy he was like a sort of like the godfather but the mentor for everybody you know okay. he, he was a he would just everyone looked up to him totally and, you know yeah. that's a, I mean the guys people would come into town to play and they'd go see Jethro Sam Bush David Grisman everybody you know and you were playing the the more swing oriented yeah, material with him because that's the stuff. Well, we were playing bluegrass, but we'd throw in some swing songs, and that's the mm-hmm. stuff like that I had heard and played on the accordion growing up. You yeah, know? and so I'd ask him. You know, he'd, he'd uh, say things like, uh, um, "Well, when you had a melody, if you could maybe put the melody on the on the top string, on the outside string, and build a chord, and you only need a couple of fingers, you know, to." build the chord just interesting stuff to, yeah. to get those passing chords you know and um it was it was just great and that was what he did for people even on an instrument that he doesn't play like the banjo he at least had enough awareness of how yeah. it worked to yeah he, he to would, give you some tips yeah if you'd ask him you know and just hey how do you, yeah. what do you do with the melody and um yeah so he was he was just and and the music just poured out of him he was mm-hmm. He uh, was kind enough to play on my very first solo recording, which was 1980 wow. okay. in Chicago. And we went into a studio, and he played on it. The guys in the band at the time, Mitch Corbin, a guy named Mark Weiss, Mark Edelstein, another co-founder of the band, the bass player, and Byron Berline came in and played on it. Yeah, but, that's a, uh, quite a group. Oh, man. And we had a great time in the studio. And Byron came in um, on a Monday and. Because we played in town one Monday a month at a club called Minstrels for about seven years because you could catch touring musicians in between. You know, they'd play for the weekend and yeah. usually they went. So they'd the hang out night. and they'd yeah. come in and, you know, people would come and sit in and it was great. But uh, I know on one of the cuts, the, the guitar player's friend, Mitch's friend, had written this tune. And I just thought it was a great tune that you could play on, you know, it just sounded like a good fiddle tune or whatever. So we uh, played it. And uh, Jethro, you know, we all played it, and Jethro played it, and said, "Man, that was great." And he said, "Well, yeah, but uh, 
I'd like to just take another run at it. I said, no kidding. Jeez, you killed it. It was so easy. <laughs> so this was before all the multi-tracking. So I said, okay, okay, sure. So that sure. means another live take for everybody. It's not just him. No, no, we could do it with him. Okay. But like I said, okay, I, I just got to run to the bathroom. And I ran into the control room and said, God, can you find, can you put him on another track or what can you do? Yeah, Back we then, they were, yeah, yeah, they, and, and so he did and we did that and he played it killer again. So then we went in to mix it and uh, we played the one solo and we played the other one. I was like, oh my gosh, what, play them both at the same time. And he had played like a perfect counterpoint twin part to himself. Wow. With, with that, that was his second pass, you know, without even thinking about it. I mean, it just... So it you was, left them both in? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was like just the music just poured out of him. What tune was that? Um, Do you remember? Oh, I can't remember. I can't remember the name. I should have thought of that before I came to see you. But That's okay. I can't remember it. But uh, I'm sure Google will know. Yeah, it's the only one on there with Jethro playing uh, two tracks. You know? Okay. But, uh, Something to geez, listen I for. I can't remember, yeah. That would be fun to track down. Um, so Special C had been going for a while by that point. Uh, right. No, no, we actually form. well, we sort of started like it was 73, 74, we would play, and we'd play for parties, you know, and then a friend would say, come over here, and then we decided to try to play some of the clubs in town, and uh, and we did, and then Mark Edelstein, the bass player, and I thought, well, you know, we're just so eaten up with it um, that we were all like college and or graduate students at the time, so we all had a lot going on, but... I uh, just wanted to play. So Mark and I decided uh, in 1975, we'll just we'll just do this for a couple of years full-time. And the other guys, you know, couldn't because one guy was finishing his doctorate and one yeah. guy was Life working. reasons. Yeah, life reasons. So uh, that's when we became Special Consensus and started touring. But we really sort of had the name Special Consensus for maybe six, eight months, maybe 74. Um but we hadn't been touring or anything. So it was 75, we became full-time, we quit our day jobs. And I forget where I heard this, and maybe this is untrue. Does the name Special Consensus have something to do with, like, a peyote experience? <laughs> Am I making that up? <laughs> I feel like I've heard that before. Uh, no. It yeah. doesn't? Well, uh, here, well, I got that from somewhere, right? I can yeah, tell yeah, by no, how it's, you're... It's, 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 it's pretty on, actually. Okay. Um, I was uh, reading these books by Carlos Castaneda uh, called okay. The Teachings of Don Juan. And he went and, uh, you know, and this was the early and mid-70s. And so he went to live with the Aki Indians. And evidently this was became his uh, dissertation. But he was trying to see how they, they had this, this real spiritual side, these Aki Indians, you know. And it was very powerful, mm -hmm. um, the energy with that. Uh, and so he went and lived with them and... Uh, um, participated in some of those peyote sessions yeah. peyote but but eventually you know you get beyond that and you don't use peyote or anything like that right. and you can get to this very intense spiritual place they had white magic and and not so good magic you know and 
Um, but in the definition of terms in the first book, he wrote many of these books, but this was the first book called The Teachings of Don Juan. Um, the space where this this really positive and intense spiritual uh, space that you know you can kind of I can feel I, I you know in my head I feel like you can that's what banjo players are talking about when you put the banjo right there and you can just feel when you're connecting with the instrument yeah and and a guitar I mean any instrument really um, but banjo players because of the resonance of the banjo and the resonator right seem to really it, there's be more able to, physical yeah yep. And so there's this intense spot like that, a, a kind of a spiritual, and then when, you know, in the physical world, uh, things are working for you, or when you're playing music especially, you're really connecting. And that the definition of that spot in this book, The Teachings of Don Juan, was called Special Consensus. Wow. That's so, very, <clears throat> very heady. A, a lot deeper than most of your river, mountain, valley boys, or whatever the, the well <laughs> your standard bluegrass names were. But interestingly enough, in a lot of the interviews uh, up until fairly recently, people would ask where the name came from, and I would just say, well, we all came from different musical backgrounds. and kind of, <laughs> Because the first couple of times I'd say anything like that, people were like, okay, check this guy off the list. Uh -huh. <laughs> I've just outed you. Yeah. <laughs> You'll never work in this town I'm done. again. I'm done. Yep. <laughs> Crash and burn before my eyes. Jeez. Oh, um, so you guys have had quite a career how how many how many years is it now well this is 2018 year number 43 wow and i think we've been through we have our 40 year anniversary t-shirts and every five years we do a you update do it a, do a, yeah we update it and have a big uh, reunion show you know and most of the people come back and the, the show consists of everybody who's played on a recording to play some songs from the recording with the people who played on the recording originally so on the back of the t-shirt this year we always list the names of everybody who's been in the band up to okay. that point i think i think nick actually our, our most recent addition which is almost three years ago he joined us on mandolin nick dumas and i think he's number 41 okay so so almost a one per year kind of correspondence yeah. that's got to be really challenging especially because you're not necessarily a frontman vocalist not at all type yeah. of type of performer you're no i just play the banjo and I, you know i sing some baritone parts so you have to find yeah good singers and good players and uh, i'm real fortunate right now because rick ferris our guitar player was our mandolin player for six years then moved to guitar so he's almost nine years with me now and that's that's pretty good run you know Gave in the world of consistency Lugas. yeah and have, have you found that you have a a band sound and you try to hire people based on that or has the band sound changed as you find different players you like and that just happens to be what the the new band is or do you have a, a sound in your head that when you hire people that's what you're going for you know it's it truly is all of the above mm -hmm. um so i've i have been fortunate in that when people know we're looking for somebody they they either they have been listening to Special C, which is often the case, which is great because mm -hmm. they kind of like the band anyway. They know what kind of material we've done, and they 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 know it. Sometimes play it with their bands, you know. So um, if they're familiar with the material at all, it's it's really helpful. And then yeah, I the we try to keep the songs in the repertoire that have done really well and that we get requests for from all the different recordings yeah. so we go back pretty far on the recordings with a song here and a song there and of course you play the newer stuff more of it um but the sound sort of stays similar you know i think we uh, i'm here in the band as 
really being in between the you know the real traditional bands, which were really not we're not from well some of us are from the parts like that, but um, uh, and and some of the what you would call I guess more progressive bands. Um, so we just try to play good driving bluegrass music, but with songs and material and themes that might be more current for our life situations, you know, and for the world Definitely. today. Um, and uh, I think um, then we've come up with, I mean, 19 recordings. Rivers and Roads is number 19. And uh, we on two of the recordings, we repeated a few of the songs. Our 25th anniversary recording, we... Did like half songs from out of print recordings, and then right. the other half, but was new, new versions songs. of them. Mm. Well, some of them were you no know, taking the old tracks and putting oh, it on. put them right on there, but then do new songs with new versions. Okay, you know? and gotcha. uh, so I did a 25th anniversary, and then a one called 35, but that only had maybe five or six of the old ones on there. Um, and it's been great having uh, Allison Brown be our producer. You know, and, and, and label owner, really. She and Gary West own Compass Records. Right. Um, but she's just great. So she brings out the best in us and um, been really fortunate that some of the great songwriters in the world of bluegrass music and country have given us really good songs, you know. Um, we, as, a, as a banjo player, what kind of things does she tell you? Or, or can that be disconcerting at times, having <laughs> someone like her listen to what you're doing? Um, I mean, you're a great player yourself, so you don't have anything to worry about. But no, it's 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 great. I'm I'm always learning, you know, lots from from so many of the great players. But especially when we're in the studio with her, it's funny because we'll play the tracks and run them down. Yeah, and then she's just got the uh, she she has this perspective which we've all adopted, I think, in our own way individually as well, where every uh, you just take every song in and of itself as this is the album. Mm-hmm. So we're not, if there's a song that feels like a, quote, filler song, then we don't do it, you know. So we just really think about the arrangements. We sit around a table, have a cup of coffee, and we this sit band there. with Allison yeah. involved. Yeah. So actually, to the point that we stopped really rehearsing songs very much that we were going to do, the new songs, before we went in, because they didn't even come close to coming out the way yeah. the way we envisioned them. So... For example, on the new recording, the the song, the John Hartford song, "Rivers uh, Way Down the River Road," mm-hmm. um, it's in the key of B, and we had sort of decided that and who would sing lead. And as we sat around the table, put together the pieces, and well, and then the speed got bumped up, and it became okay. Let's make this really fast. Okay, yeah, we'll do that. And we had it, and uh, and then we were walking in um, to the studio, and. Uh, I think that's my phone. Oh, is it? Okay. I didn't know if it was people outside yeah, the door. It's, I, it's okay. Okay. Hello? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I thought I turned it off. I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, so uh, we were getting ready to go in and just run through it, you know, as we walked into the, the, the booths and the rooms in the studio. And uh, she said, oh, you know, she had just gotten this Julia Bell the model of the John Hartford that was her thing with Deering Banjo. She helped oh, wow. them create okay. that model, yeah. and it's a low-tuned banjo. And I've played uh, several songs on the recordings since we're with Allison in F on a low-tuned banjo, hers. Uh, but this was the new one that really sounds real low-tuned. Is that an F or is it an E? Or? It, well, it, you can tune it. Uh, I actually... Either one. But. Yeah, you can. I tuned it in F for the F songs, and it sounds really great. So I'm walking in, and she said, well, hey... 
maybe we could use this band. I was like, yeah, you know, that would be really great. And it's a John Hartford song. So, okay. Yeah. So it's all set. So now we're going in and it's in B and I'm trying to figure out, wait a second, how am I going to tune this? As as I'm walking through the door, she says, oh yeah, try it in detuning, but in B. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Yeah. Just crazy ideas, you know. Talk about being disoriented. Yeah. So, uh, so I just figured out the, the tuning that was going to work and, uh, and we just played it, and it just it just sounds so different, you know, and it was just a different take on it. And... That's just a tiny example of the kinds of things, you know, we think about, we bring in other people, um, just number one, like we did a John Denver tribute recording, and mm-hmm. just because we thought he was a great songwriter, yeah. and we wanted to do his songs in the bluegrass style, and then just brought in different friends and people, because it was sort of, it was the year, what was the 50-year anniversary of the Circle album, so we thought, well, what if we did this tiny, tiny, tiny little version of that with friends in Nashville of John Denver songs, you know, and, yeah. and it... Uh, we had a great time, and we're we're just trying to make the music uh, as as good as we can, and something that we hope people would enjoy. And sure. and most of them, we can still, you know, we don't do too many songs that we can't reproduce on stage. We might not have the fiddles or the dobro or whatever, yep. but we can still play the song, you know. Yep. And uh, and that's uh, really opened the horizons, I think, for us. Just how we think about each song and how we select our material. I mean, that takes forever. I mean, we're starting to listen now. We record every two years, and this thing just came out March 30th. As soon as you're done, you and start just starting work on to, the next one. Yeah, just yeah. trying to find the right material, you know. That's that's a hard thing. And and we write some of the stuff, too, but it's hard to really zero in on the stuff. In terms of your own banjo playing through the years, how how do you see your style fitting in? Like, um, what sort of influences have you had, or what sort of things did you work on that helped you... Hmm. come up with with how you play or how you approach the music well a lot of it has to do with that drive i'll say that just that uh, that crow sound that that we all have in our ears you know all who play um it's just and as he always said the distance between the notes and that kind of thing you know so the right hand and just working on playing cleanly I think it's, and that's part of the thing when I'm teaching, I just think if you play three songs really well and really clean, it's way better than saying I can play 50 songs and but not, that aren't so good. Not so great. Yeah. And um, the swingy stuff has always been a thing that I really like. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's just what I kind of grew up with, you know, and, and ended up playing the banjo. But I mean, I love Blue Ridge Cabin Home and I love that, even the slow song, I mean, I just... I love bluegrass and the hard traditional stuff, and I, and and I like, I mean, a swingy stuff fits very well. I think it's just right. you know got a few different twists and turns. But when you have students and you're trying to teach them the drive that you that your ears think is the right way to play, how do you how do you tell them to get that? What what can they do? Well, um, obviously, you start with those roll patterns. Mm-hmm. And but you need to really every note counts and the the sound of every note 
Just that. Yeah. And if you start doing that with a metronome very slowly, see that? Uh, very slowly. And just bump it up a couple of notes. But really, so that every note sounds the same. And then as you start doing, you know, your slides and your hammer-ons and pull out everything, get right behind the... I mean, those are supposed to be two notes. And I think people fall into the trap of, oh, it's just a... And it's... Yeah. So when we're learning it, I'll show them, okay, here's what you're playing. Those are two notes. And really that's getting what them to hear it. And that's a big thing. And and even just playing Cripple Creek, you know, people say, oh, geez, I, yeah. But, you know, that has everything in it. Mm-hmm. It has the timing. It starts on an offbeat, right? And right there, those are two notes. People yeah. are doing that. And sometimes the they throw their timing, you know. timing off before they've even hit the song, you know. It's just that. So it's a... That kind of thing, where you really pay attention to every note and and, and what's there. And I think if you do that and just build on the rolls and the slides and the pull-offs and do a tune or two and just uh, work through it. And it's actually fun. It's more fun because you can feel that it's right. It's it's more fun to sound better. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And you, yeah. It, you know you're not kind of sneaking through it, you know. It's sort of, but now I understand the desire to be able to play right now. I understand that, too, because I played for a couple of years and had to start over. I had my hand position all wrong before I saw Richard, because I was just guessing on really how to... What were you doing, or what did you... Oh, I had my pinky on the top of the bridge oh. and only anchored that, and I was wobbling oh, wow. all... Okay. You know, it was just... There was no way you could really play cleanly enough. You and know? I imagine you were muting the sound a bit by doing that, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And, uh, you know, Crow helped me out a lot with just uh, saying, hit the string... In the middle of the pick, get the full sound of the pick. If you hit the pick, hit the string just on the front edge of the pick, just the tiniest bit. Now, if I turn that pick from there to in the middle, listen, it's a drastic dip. It's a drastic difference. So, just for people listening, what you mean by the middle of the pick is like a squared up... um, Like... Like a mental image of your finger pick is at a ninety degree angle with the string, right? And and rather and when than you, along the edge, right? Of the, Not the, the you don't want it, the, the front edge, like is what a lot of that's the common thing. Yeah. So, and that changes your hand position mm-hmm. because if you try to, so I I always suggest put your fingers on the string, put your middle finger on the first string and index on the second, and you can just rub them up and down a little. Feel that whole entire pick is on that string. And then you put your thumb on the fifth string. You can feel the same. Thumb is hard because sometimes your thumb bends in a little. Yeah, yeah. And if you want to really get the full, I had to really work on that, hold my thumb so I could really get the full pick. The Right, the, the meat, the of, meat the, of the pick. The blade. Yeah. yeah. And then I put my two fingers down. Right, getting getting that angle right actually dictates where the, yeah. the rest of your hand should be. It really does. And where your wrist should be too, you know. It changes your, your wrist position too. Yeah. So those are little things that, boy, it took me a long time to figure out would make it a lot easier to play well or cleanly anyway, you know. Given that Special C is known more or less like a, a traditional band, I know you said you, you straddle the line, but you, you still play the traditional, traditional. festivals. Mm-hmm. Um, given that, you actually do quite a bit of single string playing. You do quite a bit of chromatic mm. type 
playing? At least I think you do. Um, you kind of intersperse it a little bit. You know, right. I, I look at it as seasoning. Um, Where did you pick that stuff up from? Just from from hearing more guys uh, play, or from these swing players who you played with? Yeah, I think so. I, I do. Uh, I've done a lot of playing with my great friend Don Stiernberg, who was the yeah. protege of, so to speak, of Jethro. He definitely had his own thing, and he's a master of so many different instruments. Um, and Don especially, is? yeah, yeah, he's a great guitar. He's played everything in Special C except the banjo. Oh, wow. he's had in, helped us out on bass, and he's played fiddle with us. Okay, and he's I didn't realize mandolin that. and guitar. That's great. Jethro was also a great guitar player. Okay, really great guitar player. Doesn't um, surprise me. So I think, yeah, be, just being around, you just get a different sense of uh, harmonization. Um, when we were in the studio, Don and I, when Jethro passed. Um, we did a recording that was, it was, the intent was to be kind of half swingy and half bluegrass, which it sort of was. It was all instrumental, and it was a tribute to Jethro. Mm-hmm. And so we went in to do Blue Skies, you know, and for example, and Don said, well, tell you what, why don't you start it? And I was like, I don't, Don, I, I'm just, I'm learning this from you guys. I'm sitting in the studio. Right. No, no, no. Here, you know the chords. Here's the chords. And so we did a chord chart. Yeah, okay. And then, and then he said, well, he was going to take the first solo, so he said it'd be kind of cool if the banjo just kind of did something. And and I was like, oh my gosh, well, let's see, and it starts on an E minor. And then, uh, well, you know, and so the jazz guys would just run the E down. And so that's what I did. I mean, and that's how that whole beat. How did I do it now? Oh, yeah. And that's where that came from. Yeah, it was just it. that. And you put a roll around. Mm-hmm. That's, an, again, a minute example, but that's the kind of stuff you get hanging around with guys like that, you know, just those... Just pick up a little idea. Just, yeah. So I didn't realize that that was on the tribute to Jethro. I, I do own the disc titled Blue Skies that you yeah, did Yeah, that's it. Don. No, yeah, we didn't call it a tribute. That's the one I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. gotcha. On okay. the inside of the thing, we dedicated it to Jethro, you Okay. Know? Yeah. I'm with you now. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, that's neat. Some more banjo geeky stuff. What What else do you have going on? I know you have that... That Kelcroyden, you said it was a, a Yates tone ring, mm-hmm. and what a a neat neck, Frank neat neck. Yeah. Okay. What what else are you partial to? What what are you using for a bridge and strings and? Well, that's interesting too because I uh, I've changed. I just I, I have a few bridge like this one is uh, is from Silvio Ferretti. The Scorpion you know, bridges, yeah, yeah, the Scorpion, and and I also I like the Huber bridge, and I like the Moon bridge mm-hmm. that Deering has. I had that, and I got that on a couple other banjos. And a, a guy named Wadsworth made a great bridge, um, makes a great bridge. Um, so, and I, this reminds me of a, 
Uh, one time, uh, John Hickman and I were buddies, you know, and he's over with Byron Berline in Oklahoma. He's he's ill now, but he was the repair guy there at the Double Stop Fiddle Shop okay. in, in uh, Guthrie, Oklahoma. And uh, so I went up to the shop one day, and we were visiting. He said, oh, uh, how you fixed your bridges? I said, oh, I'm, I'm pretty good. Oh, okay. And he opened up this massive drawer that was filled with bridges. And and I think banjo players tend to do that. You know, you kind of accumulate and you try this and right. you try that. And, and this week, this one sounds really right. And then sometimes I'll leave it on for a couple of years. But they do kind of move around a little. They bend a little. And yeah, they so, can warp a little. Yeah. So, you, but, uh, so this one has a scorpion bridge on it. And... Um, so you're not necessarily tied to any one thing. You just go nah, with what your with what it sounds, fresh sound every yeah, now and then. Yeah. That's Pruka cool. makes good bridges, too. Does he? Some okay. His, yeah. I've not tried that. Yeah. Um, and I've been endorsing GHS strings, gosh, for a long time, probably 25 years anyway. And so I use them and um, have gone through the different gauges. Uh, you know, when I started and I said my hand position was all wrong, I'd be playing so hard and I was using medium gauge strings and breaking them at least one or wow. two a set. And now, then I went to all straight light gauge, 9, 11, uh, 12, 20, 9. Yeah. And, uh, and that was good. Uh, I, now I, I kind of like either the 9.5 or the 10. Right now I've been, you know, they have the J.D. Crow stage Crow. set yeah. and the Crow studio set. But uh, I like the, the 10, 11, 20. And the third string, for a while I was making up my own sets using a 13. But that's, okay. it's, it's a little thicker. I, I like the... I like a lot okay. of bending on it, and yet the twelve I just kept pulling out of tune. So this new, relatively new, it's not new, but the, they call them custom lights uh, for GHS, and it's I think PF one fifty five because it's ten, eleven, twelve and a half, twenty, Ooh. ten, and that that Best little half worlds. made the difference for me. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't quite pull it out of tune as much, but it doesn't feel quite as stout. Yeah, when it's a little lighter, that's where you want to have a lot of those snappy. Pull-offs, too, That's so it right. helps yeah. to have them a little lighter. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. For that kind of playing. What about microphones? How much do you know about that, or how, how partial are you to this or that, or do you just kind of use whatever somebody throws in front of you? Yeah, yes and no. I mean, I'm not a techie guy, uh, and I should be, because most banjo players now are. I think in the studio, what have I oftentimes used? Uh, it's Well, it's not a 4033, but it's sort of like that. Uh, um a condenser. A condenser. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I think, oh, geez, I can't remember the last one I used. But, uh, yeah, condensers and, and, and different, and a placement makes a big difference, too, right. you know. So on stage, I try to usually place it right by the strings, actually. Maybe in front really? of the bridge. Yeah, most people go down lower. Right, that's what I would do. But And, uh, and sometimes I do, but I just seem to get a fuller sound. If I if I stand away, I don't try to get right on top of the mic. So if I'm I don't know six eight inches away from the mic, but mm-hmm. but with it sort of aimed at the at the strings, it seems to work for me. Get a full sound and are still able to control your dynamics a bit. Yeah, moving and still out. move in and out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I back way off usually when I'm playing back up. I mean I I can walk around really because you can hear the banjo through the other mics, you know, on stage. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Um, so as a support thing uh, and uh, the styles have changed too including mine i think um over the years because before when you were backing up a, a fiddle or a mandolin you did some of the driving rolls but there's a lot of comping or chopping or whatever you call it 
And now there's less and less than that. You know, there's some players who hardly ever will hit a chord to comp. You know, they're always rolling. And that's what the band wants to keep that, 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 you know. Do you find yourself doing that regardless of what the, the uh, lead instrument is? Even under a mandolin, you'll keep some, Yeah, sometimes. Uh, but I kind of intersperse it, you know. I might roll. Go to the next chord and chop. And mix it up a little, you know. Yeah. Um, but that's interesting, just listening to, you know, Scruggs was comping all the time, Crow a whole lot of the time. Um, mm-hmm. But if you listen to Aaron McDerris say with Rhonda, he rolls a whole lot of the time. Um, and you think that's just a, a modernization taste thing? Seems, seems that way to me, a little bit, yeah. you know. Sammy Sheeler, you know, he rolls a whole lot of the time. Yeah. Um, most of the time. So, yeah, it's just interesting. That is really interesting. Um, is most of your time split, is it more teaching now than performing or 50-50? No, it's still performing. Yeah, still okay. playing with the band. I, I do the camps if there happens to be. I mean, I love it. <laughs> yeah. And there are a couple like this one that I kind of do regularly. It used to be I do maybe two a year, three a year. I think this year I did maybe six, five or six. It just depends on our tour schedule, though, you know. Okay. Um, like I've been playing in, uh, doing the camp in Germany, the Bluegrass Camp Germany, for I think this was the fifth year I did it, but I won't be able to do it next year because we're booked for a festival. Mm-hmm. Is there a lot of bluegrass in Germany? There is. There, there. I mean. I, I By a lot, it's a uh, relative thing. Yeah, yeah. But there are a lot of people who enjoy it, you know, and interestingly enough, I mean, those rhythms are very similar to what they call the upa bands, you know. <laughs> Going back the to the accordion. The, yeah, and the polkas, bass, yeah. and, you know. Yeah. And Bill Monroe recorded the heel and toe polka, you know. And, oh, um, and he had an accordion in He in did it one time, yeah. yeah. So uh, so I think they can relate to the that groove, you know, quite a bit. But yeah. there's some good players over there, yeah. What are the things that you most get asked at camps like this? You see a lot of students. What do they, what do they tend to gravitate toward? Wow, there's a lot of. I, one of the most common that usually comes up in every camp is backup. Hmm. What do you do for backup? Because that's the one thing that really is such a felt thing. You know, you can you can study some of the licks and. Uh, yeah, and and you can think about down the neck and up the neck, and when do you go down the neck, and when do you play up the neck, and there aren't too many tablature books out there that are no, there no, there there are there a couple, couple right? yeah, but uh, and even then, when you have it, it's just how do you use it, and that's mm-hmm. the trick, I think, and uh, and a whole big part of that is just listening. You know, you really have to listen to the music so much. If you drive somewhere and you're listening to the music, and then you get there, you just want to play. Yeah. But sometimes you have to really take the time then and think about what did I just hear or what catches your ear and then go back and really try to think about what what did that player just do that really... Making sure that you're helping the music and yeah, yeah. getting and, in the way. And how you select what you play when and all that. And, that. and that's the cool thing about playing the music, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And then people worry about their styles and I think, you know, it's uh, that's just so subjective. And I used to worry about that and I make up these tunes that I thought, oh, wow, this will be really different. And then I'd go try to play it, and I couldn't play it, you know, just because I was just thinking too much. What do you mean? You would you would write a tune yeah, and, that you and couldn't it, actually... I would write a tune and put together the pieces, and I might, and it might have been something that, that was just 
made no sense musically. It was yeah. notes. It was pattern. It was. It just wasn't working. And then I wasn't re- as good as you thought. No. <laughs> and uh, and then you know then I started thinking. And, and when you hear even about the first generation folks, who they listened to or what they did um, as they were creating the first generation of the music. Um, I think, you know, if we listened to uh, Blue Ridge Cabin Home together, uh, listened right through the song, no matter what band or person was playing banjo, um, I'd probably say, well, I thought that D-Lick was cool. And you'd probably say, oh, no, that G-Lick, you know, in the second chorus was cool. And so you start self-selecting the stuff that you think is cool, and then you learn it, and then you start playing it, and pretty soon your style is is emerging. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so I tell people not to worry about that because they're going to end up doing that anyway as you choose what songs you want to play or sing and as you choose what players you're going to listen to. It all influences, you know, how how it comes out of you. Yeah, that's an interesting... I've actually had that discussion on this podcast before that if you maybe take one of your solos apart, you could probably point at where you got each of those little pieces, but when you put it together, it's just yeah. Greg Cahill's style, even yeah. though it's um, and well, a and bunch even, of borrowed or stolen yeah. Uh, snippets. It's, yeah. I mean, and it's Scruggs. I mean, how many times did you... He did that a million times, and if you listen to any of their recordings or you know, live shows, whatever, you wouldn't think, oh, God, he's used that like so many times. Because each song is different and dynamic differently and maybe in a different key, which is why yeah. people try to play, not don't do 10 songs in G, you know, right in a row or whatever. But as you start mixing it up and put a different lick before it, a different lick after it, it just, you know, but a lot of it is, you know, if you learn a certain stock uh, D lick or G lick or whatever, and you just start building on that. You can you can do all right, you know. Some mixing and matching, yeah, for sure. Um, so speaking of you teaching, I know Trishka has probably gotten sick over all these years about being asked about how he used to teach Bela. You are at least somewhat responsible for unleashing one of the monsters on <laughs> on us. Noam Pakelny was a, a student of yours, right? He was. Talk about. What he was like as a student, or did you identify pretty early what his talent was? Oh, from day one. What was that all about? Well, he had already taken some lessons from a few different guys around Chicago. Okay. Um, And he uh, had already been playing, you know. He was maybe 15 when he came by me. And it was one of the times I was on the cover of Banjo Newsletter, and he read it and said, wait a second, he lives in Skokie. I live in Skokie. <laughs> oh, my gosh, we live in the same town. I'm see him. <laughs> yeah. So he called me up and said, oh, I uh, think I could come for that. I said, of course, yeah. Um, so his dad would take him and sit in the living room, you know, while we'd play through the stuff. And then pretty soon after that, for a while, he'd ride his bike over and just play one of my banjos. And um, He was a great player right from the start because he knew his Scrugg stuff. And he was a good player, and he had paid attention to timing and clarity and tone. I mean, he was really a great player when he came to Even me. by the time he was a teenager. Yeah. And wow. he, he was just asking for, how do you, thinking outside the box, because he had seen, he, Don Sternberg lived even closer to him than I did. Don was a stone's throw away from where Noam lived. They lived mm-hmm. in the same town of Skokie. And uh, so uh, that's what he was asking about, how, just what are some of your approaches? And... Uh, and after, I don't know, maybe a little over a year, he would come religiously. He was, 
and he was learning all this Bela stuff then. That's when all that was emerging big time. What, like the Drive album or after that maybe? Yeah, yeah. both okay. and after. and um, Yeah, and he just came over one day and said, play this thing and said, yeah, am I doing that right? I said, well, I'll tell you what. You sure don't need to come here anymore, and I'll show me what you did. <laughs> <laughs> Start because, paying him. Yeah, yeah. It was oh, just man. he was he he just had it, and you could tell right away. Yeah. And he worked at it too. He was dedicated. He, you know, he practiced. <laughs> so I was really hoping that you would just tell everybody the magical words of wisdom that you that you spoke to him that would instantly <laughs> transport us all into just into that. But just the P word. Practice. practice that was uh, yeah excellent yeah i do want to ask why do you why do you keep your strap over one shoulder why are you one of those guys is that just <laughs> what you've always done mm-hmm. okay truly and that was in this story is totally true everybody was doing it because scruggs did it yeah and crow did it and so we just did it and then i got used to it you know but i did rationalize i've put it over the other shoulder but it just feels different and it's probably ergonomically better for you for your body yeah because um, i end up like that you know but um it's just easier to move in and out of a mic because with over one shoulder then oh uh, you have more i can just slide it over and still be it. playing back up and not be playing into the microphone if i'm singing you know oh yeah um, it's much easier to maneuver like that to me i don't have to turn my body i just slide the banjo down just a little bit and it's it's away from the mic then i just with my that's as good of a reason as i've ever heard you know, because yeah of course, then it comes back to what, it, what did Scruggs ever say? He just did that so he wouldn't have to take off his hat to, <laughs> yeah, to put yeah. it on and off. And when he'd pick up a guitar. Everyone's copied him. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah, and I think that's totally the truth, yeah. That's really funny. Yeah. Okay, man. Well, I'm not going to take up too much more of your time, but I really appreciate you sharing yeah, the Thanks, Keith. I enjoyed it. Yeah, it was, uh, it was real nice. Thanks for doing this to get more people to to hear about the banjo you know that's great of you yeah that's really good definitely my pleasure yeah okay well have a great weekend I'll be seeing you around of course running the sound plenty yeah yeah okay thanks thanks for everything thank you And that's going to do it for this episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast with special guest Greg Cahill just as a reference you can track Greg down on the line at specialc.com that's just special than the letter c.com to find uh, his band and and everything that they're doing as a reminder you can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash banjo podcast or email the show at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com i hope you subscribe and i hope you keep listening and i'll uh, see you on the next episode <laughs>